We're ready. Welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the Midwest talk about what's going on in the news and politics and the insanity around us. Hmm. I'm Brandon Kinnick. I'm Greg Ewing. Craig, let's start off with the Tuesday Ohio ballot referendum. That's uh, This was much discussed, a lot of buzz heading into this uh, as another mm-hmm. verdict rendered on abortion. And as we saw with the Kansas referendum, there was a huge turnout. Uh, and uh, the referendum itself um, basically would have set a new threshold for future yeah. ballot referendums. It's sixty percent for it to become law. Uh, so it wasn't a direct referendum on abortion. There is going to be a separate um, ballot issue um, upholding and protecting the right to abortion in November. But this, the this, for all intents and purposes, was about abortion because that's why Republicans put it on the ballot. Yeah. Well, I just I just noticed your shirt, Brandon. What does your shirt say? Oh, it, it says... Uh, it's, it's okay if you don't like history. It's kind of a smart person hobby not, anyway. Yeah. I like that. So, yeah, I recently just... I saw this online. I'm like, I'm going to have to buy that. Yeah, that, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good shirt. And I think it's very relevant so, today. First of all, talk about Ohio. I find it... Well, tell me if you agree or disagree. I find it insane that Ohio can change its constitution. The rule book with how the state is operated by... Based on a fifty, a fifty plus one percent majority. That's well, a, first off. I, I have some sympathy for that. I understand that has nothing to do with what the uh, the, the Republicans were trying to do, but right. maybe that provided a small bit of opening to say there is an argument with. You're telling me that fifty plus one, we can we can add amendments to the Constitution in Ohio. But I mean, historically, there's several states that have that type of provision where they have ballot referendums that uh, for constitutional amendments. I mean, Kansas is one of those. Illinois. I mean, there's dozens of states that have that. The difference is, all every state has its own procedures mm-hmm. on what qualifies. Some have thresholds, some don't. It's yeah, fifty percent plus one. Most of these referendums became part of state law during the Progressive Era. So um, if you go back to like Robert LaFollette, who was the governor of Wisconsin, big progressive reformer governor, he was all about direct democracy. There was a big direct democracy movement in the early 1900s around the time that the 10th Amendment was passed for direct election of senators. So that entire era ushered in this idea that state constitutional amendments and major issues should be decided by uh, the electorate, basically via vote of the people. So that's where this came from. And I, Ohio's has been on the books in a, for a long time. I think what's unique about this case is Republicans have seen the writing on the wall with the referendums in Kansas, mm-hmm. uh, with um, where abortion has been on the ballot in Michigan and California and Montana and Kentucky. Red or blue, every state that it's been on the ballot uh, abortion has won out. People have said we want to protect yeah. the right to abortion, and so Ohio Republican lawmakers, to get ahead of this, decided, well, let's increase the ballot threshold, the uh, voting threshold, six to sixty percent for a constitutional amendment to pass. The reason that's notable is most of these abortion uh, referendums in various states have passed in the high fifties. They mm-hmm. haven't reached that sixty percent mark. It would be more difficult in a state like Ohio, which leans red, for it to reach out to, unlike California or someplace else or New York. And they thought, saw this as a way to just stop that because there is a November referendum on abortion. And the fact of the matter is the Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, himself said this is about abortion. We're trying to stop abortion from advancing. The other thing I think that impacted the way people voted is that the Ohio Republican lawmakers very cynically 
have recently voted to do away with August elections because yes. of low turnout and the costs yes. associated with them. But then they carved out an exception just for this. Thinking everybody's going to be on vacation, this is the best Yes, time because to. they thought this was the best yeah. time to get it passed and to win out. So I think that played into how people voted as well. They saw this as a cynical power ploy, even outside of the abortion issue. But there's no question the abortion issue was a rallying cry. Turnout mm -hmm. was yeah. um, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 39%, which is unheard of. I, I think they got over 3 million people. Oh, yeah. Which is like in the midterms, they got like 4.4 for a couple did or for the uh, a governor and a senate race so yeah. this was a very high output for august this, well this, yeah this rivaled um midterm turnout in november and it was higher than uh primary midterm turnout when you actually are voting in republican democratic primaries yeah. so very significant it passed 57 to 43 percent uh basically or i should say if it was voted down 57 yeah. no i have to always stop and think the mechanics very similar to the Kansas numbers with the abortion referendum, which was 59-41. And now the actual abortion referendum that's on the ballot in Ohio in November that will very likely it pass in the high 50s, it'll um, fail. And But there won't be that 60% threshold that um, the activists yeah. will have to reach. So here's, here's the only reason why I bring up the 50% mark. Because if you're trying to play a little three-card Monty with, with, the, with your constituents, which is what the Republicans are trying to do, this is about abortion, but they also want to wrap it into more of a, of a constitutional issue. And I heard them play a little bit of the uh, of, of the card. Well, what we're really doing is keeping out-of-state money and out-of-state influence from coming into Ohio and having this issue not decided by Ohioans. That was kind of one of the, the pitches. They also pivoted to the, the example that they used in their advertising was the trans issue. They didn't lean a lot into the abortion issue. They leaned more into kind of, hey, we don't want uh, outsiders and outside money coming into the state of Ohio and, and changing the, the ground rules. I, I can understand that, that argument, but that's that, a that very nuanced, very subtle, that's a very long-term play argument you're gonna have to make with people to, to get them on, on on your side. But that, I mean, that was their public argument. But again, I think sure. behind the scenes, we all Yeah, we all know argument. what they were doing. Well, and the irony is, I mean, both sides had a ton of out-of-state money spent on this uh, ballot referendum. True. And I mean, even the um, pro side, trying to get it on the ballot, had uh, millions brought in from out-of-state special interest groups in Washington. Which is going to happen. That, yeah. that's, I understand the Ohio Republicans' point in, in what they were wanting to do. But if you're going to do that, if this is the presentation you're going to make, one, you completely misread kind of the, the electric that people's antennas are, are up right now to anything that they perceive to be taking away democracy rights or freedoms. Right. And this is on the heel of Dobbs. So you had to know you were swimming upstream immediately. And this is not something that you were just going to be able to kind of slide under the rug with a November special election. Well, and it's so transparent and people saw through it, right? I mean, placing this on the ballot right before yeah. the major abortion vote in November, I, you know, if they would have placed it after that, it would have been one thing and those arguments may have resonated more. But it was just the and, timing of it was so obvious. And if you're going to do this... Watching you better have a really good marketing message and a really good overall campaign to educate people on what you're doing. Because Ohio is a pretty red state. There is a pathway that this could, could pass, I think, in Ohio. And I think they missed the ball here by bringing in the abortion issue, the trans issue, 
and kind of linking these to, hey, we don't want these things to happen in our state, instead of just a simple commercial saying, Ohioans, did you know that 50% plus one can change the rules of the game? Did you know how we are like these states, we're not like these states? This is what we're trying to do. My point is that you could have centered a whole campaign around the evils of a simple majority and how a simple majority oh, yeah. leads to problems many, many, many times. And but, you could have trusted that the people of Ohio could have understood that the 50 plus one leads to problems. Leads to problems when one party's in power, leads to problems when there's another party in power. But they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to address the structural needs to why a reform like this no. could be a positive. Instead, they went right to culture war issues. Well, and that was the the problem. I mean, th there are blue states like Illinois that have a 60% yeah. requirement. And I go back to the Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, let the cat out of the bag when he said this is about abortion. And so it's hard to then sure. pivot to any type of message yeah. when you have that type of public statement by a statewide elected official. So, yeah, I totally agree. There was a way to message but, this. But, but even that, there, there's a great commercial in that, 50 plus one. You know, do you think 50 plus one? You, you can see a commercial where they hold a whole pot of people and they divide them up into two groups and say, we can't decide this, and just one person walks to the other. Ohio, is that what you want? Do you, if you want to get cynical with it, hey, Ohio, do you trust your neighbors enough to be a 50 plus one state? Do you agree with the people around you and your community enough on major issues like abortion, like the trans issue, to get this to 50 plus one? And then you could go through a whole history of how that is, that leads to problems all the time. I'm not saying yeah. that's a winning message. Right, but that's a message, yeah. What I'm saying is that would be a politically correct, legitimate message based on the attitude of the electorate regarding the abortion issue and taking rights away. Right. It's almost like they, they didn't recognize what the core issue for the electorate was at all and just went with, well, this is the message of the day. We're anti-abortion. We're just going to charge forward with this. And they failed to see that these culture war issues, the fact that they take them to the extreme, don't play well with electorates even in red states. Like, there is a degree too far, and, and that's what I think happened here. Very similar to Kansas, you saw very high turnout, very high margins for the no mm -hmm. side in the urban areas. So, you know, Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, Franklin County where Columbus is, uh, the uh, county uh, where um, Cincinnati is. So well, high youth turnout, high... Uh, the Ohio State, like 85% of students eligible to vote voted. voted which yeah. is insane. Yeah, that's crazy. Plus, but the other thing, too, was you had a handful of Trump red counties that actually voted no as well. Kind of like what you had in Kansas, that phenomenon. So there is that, you know, kind of bipartisan... With the number of votes this this received, lots of Republicans voted that they didn't oh, yeah. want this. this. This was across the board with, right. with it that And eye. so that's why I say that's a message they should take back to say, hey, you know, this is a bridge too far. Uh, but to your point that we were talking offline, they don't seem to internalize that message. They just continue to go full speed ahead when it comes to their messaging on abortion, which is like, we need more. They didn't stop with Roe v. Wade. No. It's like, we need to take these restrictions further on a state level. We need a national abortion vote. And even though time and time again, they're served up with verdicts by voters that say that's not what we want. So I think the Republicans are completely misreading where they're at politically after Dobbs. 
I mean, this is obvious from the, the midterm elections that Dobbs didn't do them any favors. They didn't message it correctly, and, and they, they continue to struggle. And it feels like they're nowhere close to getting a, a message kind of that they can all, all agree on. Hannity last night had on um, uh, Mike Huckabee, old governor from uh, Arkansas, big pro-lifer. And even Hannity was saying, it's time to change the message, guys. This is not working. This idea that that we're going for some sort of national ban on on abortion, that that's what the Republican Party wants. It's killing us in the states right now, and it's going to continue to hurt us in 2024. To that, Mike Huckabee just said, no, this is is what we're going to do. We are pro-life. We are always pro-life. We are not moderating this stance one bit. Brandon, is there any, or what could happen? Well, could the Republicans lose enough in 2024, you think, to modify that message? Or are they just locked in that, hey, we're pro-life, it plays well with a, a section of our base, and that's just what it's going to be? I mean, I think they can. I think that it's going to take new leadership, I mean, both at, when it comes to their political leaders and at the helm of the RNC. So I, I think it's going to be gradual. I think it could start in 2024, and then you see it build. And again, part of the issue is Republicans don't have a consensus position when it comes on abortion regulation now that Roe v. Wade is gone. The position that was the safe position before was abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, but it, and the legal part was always backed by the uh, Roe v. Wade. There was always that kind of safety net that you have Roe v. Wade, which mandates that abortion be legal, so you can have restrictions on the margins and be okay with that, and that was the consensus position. Well, the Dobbs decision obliterated that. Yeah. Now the guardrails are gone. There is no legal protection at all for abortion at any stage for any reason. And uh, Republicans are scrambling. If you look at the patchwork of states that have tried to ban abortion, mm-hmm. it's all over the map. Anywhere from yeah. um, you know six months to 12 months to 16 months. Exceptions for life of the mothers. Uh, some only have uh, some have exceptions for health. Others do not. I mean, it's literally all over the place. There is no common ground, and so when the party doesn't have a common message for what abortion regulation should look like post Dobbs, they're going to continue to flounder and fail because there's always going to be those groups that take it to the extreme, and the party's never going to be able to override that message. And I'm under the impression that the Republican Party, for the foreseeable future, is not capable of developing a standard message on abortion that is enforceable across all Republican no, politicians. It's just not, That's just yeah. not going to happen. I mean, this is There's where... There's factions within the party that, you know, yeah. want a, that, to your point, there are factions of one and all the way up to a national abortion ban, and they won't settle for anything less. So the reality of, for the Republicans is they have lost one of their key pillars that they used to get people to the polls. That's what Roe v. Wade did for them. Yeah. They could always tap that abortion issue and activate a certain section of their of their base more so than that's the left could do and now well, you see that reverse the yeah. left is tapping the left just got money off of it we, right. we we fundraise off this. that's still intact the republican side i don't think they have a real what what is their five-year plan on abortion in the united states they don't even have one year plan. I, I, so right now it's it's a state by state you got yeah. what you wanted out of Rome and I, I, I agree with Dobbs. Roe was an absolute constitutional nightmare. The court just made up laws. They made up trimester rules. That's all stupid. That all had to be flushed out. 
But I agree with what uh, Roberts wanted to do. Just throw the trimester and the viability stuff out of the federal statute, leave that to the states for them to fight about, and just codify a woman's right to have an abortion in, that is in, in the Constitution. Looking back, that definitely seemed like the way to go from a political perspective for, for Republicans. Right. When I think we both agree in 2024, abortion's going to be a problem for, for the Republicans again. When does it stop being one, and what do they have to do to make it stop being one, Brandon? Well, I mean, it goes back to there has to be some... The problem is it's not in the foreseeable future because now that it is a state issue, there is no way for national leaders or the national party apparatus to exert any kind of control over state elected yeah. officials and, and the state governors. They're going to do what they think is in the best interest of their primary electorate. I want to emphasize primary yes. electorate because yep. that's what this is all about, especially in states where all it takes is for a Republican to win the primary and then they can kind of skate to the general election. So until you see those dynamics change, until you see um, a change in how some of these districts are drawn, or you start to see like districts that were once um, uh, unwinnable be won by Democrats, then that will start some reflection and a shift in thinking. Um, and, and perhaps I think also if you see in 2024, I watch um, some of these states where Democrats are successful in getting abortion referendums on the November ballot, like Arizona, like Florida, yeah. there may be a few other swing states. And if it impacts not only the presidential election, but the Senate races in some of those close states, it's that's where you're going to actually see a change in behavior, I think, around the issue. I mean, what the Republicans need right now for this issue, for what we're talking about, they need a strong central party leader to develop. And they don't have that. And there's just no way. And there's no evidence that says they want to go back no. to a strong party leader. They don't even do autopsies anymore. No. To chart out They've stopped asking questions yeah. about why they're losing. So so I, I guess what I hear you, what we've come to on it, for the foreseeable future, like the next two or three election cycles, the Republicans are just going to be all over the map on this. They're not going to get the results they want. No. And the Democrats are going to use this strategically to, to out outperform Republicans in elections across the board. Yeah, I think, and, and Democrats, it's savvy for them to find any and every way to put abortion on a ballot, especially in a midterm or a presidential election, because they know now it drives turnout on their side and it leads to wins. So, you know, it's been very advantageous for them. I'm going to take a short detour talking about party and the Republican Party. And I think both of us agree that the Republican Party is in complete disarray right now, yeah. on the verge of, of melting down and having to start from scratch and kind of re reformulating itself. Jonah Goldberg. I, I like Jonah Goldberg. He's a conservative columnist. He's a conservative intellectual. He's written some great books. Suicide of the West is, is fantastic. He had a tweet that basically said, small dollar donors are killing the Republican Party. That small dollar donors. People who said, or I think his line was, they're just glinting their spleen with their credit card. People are just screaming into the, the political void $50 at a time, supporting mostly populist candidates like a Trump. Mm -hmm. And that is killing the Republican Party and killing democracy at this point. And if you really wanted to get up in arms by looking at the last 10-year, 12-year cycle we're in, small dollar donations and ordinary citizens getting involved in the political process has fueled the majority of where we're standing at today. And it's not very good. No, and I mean, I, Trump's rise uh, 
it was a catalyst for that because Trump relied on the small dollar donors, and that has spilled over to Trump's endorsements and uh, people in the MAGA mold. And it's leading to outcomes, and it continues to lead to outcomes that are detrimental to the party. And a good case in point, if you're looking at next year's elections, there's two races that in normal times could very well be winnable for the Republicans that they look like they're going to throw away. One is at the Arizona Senate race, <laughs> where Carrie Lake is apparently running. God, she's a lunatic. And she's going to Good be the God. darling yeah. of the MAGA small-dollar donors. But she's going to lose, and everybody yes, knows she she's going to lose. Uh, so you have that. And then in Montana, where John Tester only won yeah. by three points I think you're beating in Tester. 2018, uh, you have Matt Rosedale, who's in the MAGA mold, who lost to him before, who's running in the primary against a hand-picked um, Senate Republican recruit who would likely be Tester. But the problem is, in a primary, Matt Rosendale is uh, the Trump MAGA favorite, will yeah. probably win. And then, again, Republicans may lose another winnable race. So this is, I, what, what Jonah's point, I believe, is, because I've listened to a lot of him, is basically that the who runs should be controlled by the party. The party, party apparatus, yeah. the party elites, however you want to call it, they are the ones that should be deciding who carries the standard for the Republican Party. And part of the reason why we have Trump and Kerry Lake and this other barrage of political lunatics we have to deal with now is that the party has given up so much of, of control, mostly through the primary system, to the voters. And it's the great unwash now through the power of donating every month $20 at a time in mass that is promoting candidates that are not in line with what the Republican Party needs to be successful. So, I mean, you've been involved with, with parties a lot, with the Republican Party specifically. What is there an opportunity for, and we're just going to call them the elites of the party. There's no way around it that this is a this is a kind of a douche argument too. <laughs> hey, what makes you somebody who who is you know? What would you pass a test? Did you write a book? What gives you the right to formulate who can run as a Republican and who can't? But at the same time, any organization that can't control its brand can't exist. No, and that's what the Republicans there has to be have some type of centralized organizational no. focus and leadership. But the problem is. As a general rule, what we've seen over the last two decades, and very much over the last seven, eight years, is that the party system has weakened. And on the Republican side, the party has weakened greatly. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a way for them to regain control, and that partially coincided with Trump just flaunting the party at every turn, yeah. and, and taking you know um, the money and, and doing his own fundraising operation. The party um, slavishly tried to cash in by, you know, connecting their fundraising effort with Trump's, which was the first time that was done in history. But the problem is it hasn't benefited the party because no. when people donate, they still donate to Trump. And when they donate to candidates, they don't donate through the NRSC or the NRCC. They donate directly to those candidates via appeals that come from Trump saying, I endorse this person. Yep. And I don't see any way that that changes in the short term because nobody is donating to the party anymore. The party still has the same processes, they still have the same structure, they still elect delegates, they still cast their formal votes at the convention, but they don't have the uh, reputation and the authority that they once had. And, and people know that now. And so the problem is once people step away and they begin exercising authority outside of the system, 
what way is there for that authority to be returned? I, I don't see that happening. I, I don't know. I mean, you've got a system now where between small dollar donations and social media, you can't, we discussed this last week, you can't really move somebody in the party. The party has lost all control to be able to, to control who speaks for it and, and who doesn't. Well, and, and completely too, I mean, frankly, the party's message gets drowned out on social media and elsewhere by the individual candidates. And let's not forget, you know, with the um, Citizens United and the various uh, cases on campaign finance since then, the rise of PAC money. I yeah. mean, these PACs, third party PACs as well, combined with the candidates themselves and the small dollar fundraising, they just supersede everything. I mean, you don't, you can't even see the party's messaging usually because it's drowned out by these other voices. So, Brandon, do you have any affection or affinity for the party system where you'll just plant a stake in the ground and say, parties need to stay? There's what they provide, there's value to them. I can see a future in 40 or 50 years when the traditional party system, as we know it, still exists. Or are we just watching something slowly die and something else will emerge from it? Well, it is slowly dying, but I don't think what we have now is sustainable. It's basically a free-for-all, it's chaos. I mean, what we really need in this country, and this gets back to the discussion we've had a lot before, is we really need serious campaign finance reform, which would, uh, I, I think, reduce just the volume of money we have, as well as this idea. The other problem you have with the lack of authority in the party is you have candidates that then get elected through those small dollar donors as well as those PACs. They owe they, nothing to it. No, they owe nothing to yes. the party. They have no affinity towards the party, so they feel more at ease um, jumping out of line and making endorsements of other people and, Brandon, and other candidates. Isn't this no, how a party's supposed to work? I gave you money, Brandon. I got you elected. I provided your campaign infrastructure and everything you needed to be politically successful. So the deal is, when I take when I call you, you take my call. Yeah. If I need something, if it's within reason, your answer is yes. To your point, that doesn't what, happen. Anymore. How can I control you anymore when you don't need me? No. Yeah, you have a whole class of Republicans now. You are. Um, Matt Gates, Margie Taylor, Greenwood, those psychos they don't, don't care about the party. They, I mean, they give the middle fingers to the party because they were elected without the party's help and, and frankly, in spite of the party working against them in many cases. You've been on the Hill. You have been in the, the bowels of the Republican beast, so to speak. After Trump is done with the Republican Party, and we don't know when that's going to be, he makes that decision himself. Only he can decide. When he's done with the Republicans, is there any chance they have a party left? I, I think it all depends on whether or not anybody stands up, anybody gets a spine finally at that point and says, okay, this is the direction we need to go and this is how we're gonna get there. If there's a leadership that emerges from the ashes of the, you yeah. know, the fire once it burns out. But I mean, frankly, I don't know. I mean, I could very well also see just a new party created in the place of yeah. what the Republican Party wants but, to... So what, what, what you're telling me is there's no king shit in the Republican Party somewhere, even on the local or federal level, that can just call down to Ohio and say, nope, not happening. Take it off. No, we're not yeah, doing it. It doesn't exist anymore. Nope. I mean, it doesn't exist with our, it doesn't match our messaging. It's going to do more harm. We're going to look like buffoons on a national stage. You're done. Take that shit off. We're not voting on it. I mean, there's nothing that can do that. No, because if that existed, we would have seen that on the federal level with um, the budget showdowns and the debt showdowns. We would have seen it with Tommy Tuberville's blocking, uh, military blocks that he's done with over the abortion issue, which has caused a lot of 
consternation as well as getting to the point of causing actual harm to military readiness. But but there is no organizing force that has that ability to do that, that the people will listen to. That's the problem. Does When you worked on a senator staff, and I think I'm just repeating the same question multiple times out of desperation to try to find some way the party still interacts to control politicians. But when you were on Senator Moran's staff, did how much... How much contact did you have with the Republican Party? Did you check in with them? Is it a quarterly meeting? Or is it like, hey, we just don't, we operate completely independent of the RNC and we don't, we don't need anything from them, we don't get anything from them, and we just treat them like an entity that around election time we have to deal with? Well, no, I mean, at that time, I mean, senators like Moran, they would um, like attend RNC meetings, you know, they would speak. I, I mean, they, they understood what was happening on the fundraising front, on the, the messaging front. So they were involved mostly through their chief of staff. So yeah, I mean, that happened. It was a very different time. I also remember back when Mar- Senator now Senator Jerry Moran was Congressman Moran on the House side um, during the George W. Bush era, he voted um, against a couple of bills that were pushed and, and supported by the administration and by the Republican House majority at the time, which was led by uh, Dennis Hastert. And he got a lot of grief over that. Like, I mean, it was a big deal. And he almost, I mean, that's one of the reasons why he um, had a Senate primary and barely won it the first time. Was because he because, pissed off the Republican Party? Right, and a lot yeah. of the establishment went against him at that point. That doesn't happen anymore. No. I mean, no. and that was just on a hand, you know, two votes. I mean, yeah. he was not someone who did that routinely. So that is part of the problem. The entire system has just changed. But typically, yes, there was a, a connection. There was that. And now, I mean, from what I've heard, when the RNC has um, finance calls or um, major updates that they usually do by teleconference, I mean, many senators and members of Congress don't even show up. Yeah. I mean, they just, just staff members, I'm assuming. Yeah, just I mean, don't there's care. just, I mean, and they just kind of flaunt them. I mean, there's no, they don't care. So what I heard, what I'm hearing you say, Brandon, is that being the RNC is a lot like having kids. Once they stop taking your money, you have no control over them at that point. Yeah. You can complain, you can bitch, you can suggest, you can threaten. But at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot you can do. And everybody seems to know it. And so I think that's one thing that's been really recognizable. If you do see the RNC's messaging, which again, it's difficult to see because <laughs> just it gets uh, overtaken by just all of the other um, stimulus out there and uh, the other messaging. But if you do see it, uh, it's not forward thinking. It's not policy driven or agenda driven. It's all, I mean, very critical of Biden, very critical of the Dems. And the past, If I mean, if you go back to even early Obama era and definitely before that and Clinton and Bush, there was always that very proactive, policy-driven um, part. It was a balance, yeah. right? Yeah. That balance isn't there. It used to be 50-50. They're not even attempting. They're not even, no, they're not even, they're even giving a, a nod to it. Just like, hey, we used to be. We're not even doing that You know anymore. what? Even when Trump was president and you know they controlled the, the House and the Senate before Democrats took back the House in, um, in 2018, the RNC had already pivoted to that type of messaging because all of their messaging at that point was just hammering Dems. And it, there was a disconnect, right? Because you would read that and you're like, but the Democrats are even a power. Why aren't you talking about like yeah, what you're it, doing when you are the ones that have the authority, but no, you're just hammering the Dems when they can't even do anything. <laughs> Brandon, speaking of losing control of your children, Hunter Biden seems like we got a special prosecutor today. 
Yeah, and I <laughs> think this was a good move by Attorney General. I, I think Carter. it had to be done. And and so the um, prosecutor who was already in charge of the case has been elevated to special counsel. It shows that number one, the uh, uh, the separation of power within the government, the fact that the Attorney General is acting independently, that he is not. Again, this is one of the common Republican criticisms, right? That he's it's Biden's Justice Department, yeah. You know, and their two-tier justice system. Well, no, actually, it isn't because you know if this had been flipped, can you imagine uh, Trump's Attorney General going after no, you know, his uh, son or Jared? He wouldn't do that. Trump would sack him. Like he did Trump did it the right way. Just bring him into the White House, make him part of the administration. Right. Trump. Trump's a goddamn genius. Just commit crime right out in the open. You don't have to go around and hiding this. No, you don't need Hunter to be your bag man. Just do it Jared Kushner style. Right. That's that that that's the flaw. They just did some traditional old school grifting, and they got caught doing it. it yeah. Well, and it was out in the open, and it was while he was president, which is why you know the two things are different. But uh, but no, I think it's a brilliant move by Garland because it shows the independence of the DOJ. It shows that they're taking this seriously. It takes a lot of the error out of the Republicans' argument because oh, I yes. think you know they are no longer going to be able to use the two-tier justice system line. And as you know, has already been stated, um, they're going to be um, kind of hamstrung in terms of what they can use because now the DOJ is going to be gathering evidence and there's going to be a lot of evidentiary filings that are going to be inaccessible to this House yep. committee, yep. Um, which has also just been toiling and stumped now for well, a long time. They don't have anything. Why did Garland let that committee go this far? I mean, why he, did he roll this out? So he just could have question. rolled this out earlier nipped all of this in, in the mind. So that is a criticism I do have of Garland, and I, that goes back to why didn't the January 6th investigation happen sooner? Why didn't he appoint Jack Smith sooner? He seems a bit cautious. He is. He's very cautious because I Almost like he's a judge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But see, this is the problem because, especially with the January 6th investigation, that would have been a lot more salient for American voters if that would have started as quickly after... Uh, January 6th is possible with the appointment of the special counsel. And I think part of the problem is Americans are very forgetful. We have very, you know, short-term memories. People move on. Yeah. And so it becomes very difficult to then relitigate the gravity of what happened, for example, on January 6th. Now, I think that the January 6th committee did their best to, to tell that story and to fill that gap until... I mean, they basically had to hand Merrick Garland a silver platter saying, sure. here's everything you need for prosecution. Yeah. But yeah, he's been very cautious, but cautious to a fault, because I think a lot of this should have happened earlier. And I think if it had, we wouldn't be in this predicament now heading into an election year where we have everything on the line and we're going to have trials that are um, occurring in the middle of an election that, you know, and with outcomes that, you know, are going to well, be in doubt. The Biden admin gets major downvotes for the Hunter, how they've handled Hunter Biden. Number one, they shouldn't even let him be anywhere near the administration from day one. Knowing that that the Republicans, this is a dog with a bone, and there's there's meat on this. So them flaunting him around and making him basically part of the administration from day one, massive, massive. But we should know. I mean, he's, he he doesn't serve in the administration. Doesn't matter. He's a private citizen. We're just on straight political optics and lens. Well, right? I agree. So uh, so I, I assume you're pointing to the fact that the state dinners and the things correct. That that. Stop taking him overseas. Stop making him come to. Stop letting him come to state dinners. Don't give him that okay? spotlight. Yes. Yeah. He is an ex drug addict who's had pictures of him with prostitutes online. Hey, no judge. 
judgment. I don't give a shit. But this is politics. Tell tell the guy to take a seat. And, this is and you're fucking 53 years old. You're not a child anymore. Sit your ass down, shut up, and get on the sideline. This is the problem, though. I think Biden has a blind spot when it comes to hunting. Absolutely. That's the problem. It's, Absolutely. And again, I feel and for him because he only has two surviving well, children left. We're, but we're past that. Yeah. We're, we're past all. That shit worked during the election, but... We've gone a little past Biden's just this old, gentle, kindly man. After Afghanistan, that that myth is totally gone. He can't play on that any anymore. Second, why in the hell didn't you just hang a felony on him for the gun charge? I, I really believe this would almost all be over if in the first attempt to charge Hunter Biden, they just said, hey, the tax shit, everybody, he paid him, everybody gets probation for that, that's a misdemeanor, that's no big deal, but the gun shit, he's going to hang with a, with a felony. Now he's going to go through some program, there's no jail time, but he will walk around as a convicted felon. You give the Republicans the red meat that they're looking for, and you basically cost yourself nothing. Everybody knows Hunter Biden's a scumbag, and everybody knows the Biden family's grifting off their name, just like every other high-end politician. Right. Why not just just a little bit of acknowledgement, a little bit, and, and would the world really be less of a place because Hunter Biden has a felony conviction? Really? My point being, there was a way that we could have all gotten around this. Everybody could have... that is an issue. Because everybody here is just for, for political gain. Everybody could have gotten the bite out of the apple that they wanted, and we all could have moved on. But instead, now we're at a special prosecutor. Which again, I think people—I think people didn't make the pivot. People my age and people that are politically aware, as you are, Brandon. Ken Starr was a independent counsel. Yeah, he didn't report to anybody. Right. Ken Starr went way too far. It went way too long. Oh, yeah. It's that's when they said, "Hey, we can't." We can't have these people just running free, completely untethered from the How government. How many years was Ken Starr's? Four or five? Was crazy, yeah. It was It was insane. And so they're trying to bring these people kind of back under the fold afterneath that with, with bringing them back where they report up to the Attorney General and, and through, the, through the DOJ. With that, you could have said, look, the, while the, the office of the president did not get in the way, they certainly, there's no argument to make that Joe Biden is playing preferential treatment to his son if he's a convicted felon. This aggravates me because my team, the Dems, this was something that was fairly easy to navigate. There was a price to be paid. The only price person who had to pay it was Hunter Biden, who's certainly done enough to deserve it, and we could be moving on right now. But instead, how long does the average special counsel go on? Two years? Three years? Yeah. I mean, Comer hates this. The Republicans hate this. Their committee now is basically over. Because if you get, the, the committee's at the point now where they're talking about in, um, uh, issuing a subpoena to the President of the United States. Well, that's not gonna happen. And if they wanna, wanna subpoena anything else, they can just say, I can't talk to you because I, I got a note from the special counsel. So it effectively shuts all of that down. This is not what the Republicans wanted. The Republicans have won almost about everything they've gotten or they could get out of Hunter Biden. There's a little bit more there to squeeze. This takes it out of their hand. And I bet you we don't hear Hunter Biden's name again meaningfully until after the 2024 election. Well, I hope you're right because, I mean, we've heard it now for the last 
three years, so it's nonstop. And if I'm Garland, I could have done that day one. Yeah, just well, said, I you know what? That. As soon as those assholes won the the, uh, the 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 house, just say, you know what? We're not getting into all of that. We're just going to do just going to do special. Like you said, this could have been done the beginning, and it, this investigation has dragged on as well. And the outcome is now uncertain in far, as far as the sentencing, based on what happened at trial. That I mean, how was it that the defense and the DOJ prosecutors were not on the same page about immunity for? I mean, well, Hunter, that just it blows my mind. How how do you take the tax case and then wedge that un, into the gun case and say we're not? He's free and clear from charges over here. That that yeah. made no sense. And of course, the Republicans don't like it's. It's Weisman, the guy who's been the the attorney for the government on Hunter Biden, like the past year and a half or two years. He will now just become the special counsel, which is something I, the Republicans melted down about two weeks ago, thinking he should have been a special counsel already. Yeah, and they already don't like that he's he's the special counsel. Unless the special counselor is Kerry Lake or Don Jr., right? They're gonna they're gonna cry foul. Pretty much. Yeah. So. Did the Republicans get everything out of Hunter Biden they wanted? Eh, I'd say pretty close. But I also think, too, they, they know they're reaching a time. It, it's time to wrap this up. The expiration date is there. But, I mean, in terms of getting what they wanted, I mean, as a political issue, I mean, yeah, I guess to a degree. But at the end of the day, I mean, I, I don't think voters are going to be passing their vote based on Hunter Biden. But I think this is how this came about. I'm the head of the RNC, as I think the RNC should run. You're one of our top operatives for 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 for, uh, for congressional contact. I just tell you, Brandon, Trump's going to be in the barrel from now until election day. We can't let that go. We can't let the news cycle be a 24 hour. Focus. I mean, Hunter Biden was meant to be. I need you to take this Hunter Biden thing and get as much out of it as we can. We have to show some symmetry. Every time they say our guy sucks and is a criminal, you have to point right back to theirs. We cannot let that scale get that poor balanced. So it's your job to get out there and just keep whipping this shit until we, we have, we've accomplished that goal. But to your point, I think they've taken this about as far as they can go. The next thing would be an impeachment, perhaps, or, or a subpoena of the president. Those are both going to go nowhere. Yeah. So just, just use it for negative press against Biden and go from there. Yeah, I agree. I but think it's I will give it. I mean, we do have to give them some much. credit. They have done political damage to Biden. Biden's story has shifted to, I've never talked to him. I'm, I'm pure as the driven snow. None of this ever happened to, eh, okay, you're the guy they call. And Hunter says, what's up, Dad, when he's got a strong arm somebody to yeah. get what he wants. He leverages and his you're, you're not directly involved in it. There's no checks made out right. to you. We're all sophisticated enough to understand that. that. Yeah. But we also know... The game of presidential politics. I, I guess the point where the Republicans miscalculated, or it was never in their calculation, there's just no outrage about this. This is just standard American political grifting. No, I, yeah, it's standard political grifting. And I do, again, I've said this before, but I do think it matters. I mean, Biden was not in office at the time. This happened when he was out of office. It doesn't make it any less disgusting. But it does change it, I think. It is a difference than when you're actually in office and you have the ability to leverage the powers of government in addition to your name, which is not what happened here. Well, and hey, Jonah Goldberg, if you listen to the podcast, and you probably don't, where you've made, I think, a miscalculation, it is not the people donating small amounts that is the problem. The problem is the politician, the party, the people on the other side of the coin that are whipping up this this grift, 
that are whipping up this this animosity towards another yeah. group well, and are basically just stealing from these people. Well, stealing from them, yes, and grifting off of them, but I would go simplify that further. The problem is the politicians are just directly lying to their voters. They're yes, lying to 100%. Them and then benefiting from those donations from enraged voters who are fear, fearful and enraged. And we have to remember that's been, I mean, that's the Fox News model, right? It's enraged and incite fear. Every story that comes from that network is either fear-based or it's to enrage you. And it's all attached to an individual so you can personally see how that person got screwed and project that onto you. Right. There's never, it's never subtle. It's always somebody did this to this person that looks like you, therefore you should be mad. Therefore like they're going to come after you. Correct. Which it's is just Trump's a 24 message. hour yeah. cycle. And, and, and that's, Trump has been extremely effective at convincing his supporters yep. that every time he is under threat of prosecution or being prosecuted, that that's going to happen to them. That if they can do this to me, they can do this to you. That by coming after me, they're coming after you. I hate that line. Well, yeah, it's so ridiculous on its face, but it's it apparently it's powerful and it works to some degree. Yeah. Have, have, did you see Mitch McConnell getting booed in, in Kentucky? No. When was this? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send this to you. He's at the Kentucky State Fair, Great Jamboree, some shit. Okay. Something he's been to every year that he's given the same 15-minute remark to for a whole 40 years of his career. Right. And they are just, the crowd is just without mercifully chanting, retire, retire. Wow. They literally drowned him out. Now, McConnell doesn't cut his thing short. He gives the full 15 minutes. But the I'm voters, this, yeah. uh, I'll send it to you. Okay. The voters seem very, very fed up with Mitch McConnell. And this comes after uh, his momentary stroke or whatever it was that happened. Whatever, yes, this was after. his cognition, yeah. train of thought, and completely stopped mid-sentence. And, you know, that was just a couple weeks ago. So very uh, relevant, yeah. Mitch McConnell could have retired in, what, he, he got reelected in 2022, didn't he? Or was it 2020? Uh, Maybe it was 2020. 2020, I think. Okay, yeah. so he could have yeah. retired in 2020 Played the legacy card of, look at the marvelous Supreme Court. I have left you. I have done my job. It is very obvious the Republican Party is moving in a direction that I'm not moving in. That's okay. I've had my time. It's time for me to go home. Nobody retires at And all. I think he would have gotten a victory lap out of that. He would have gotten a few uh, puff pieces by MSNBC and CNN, some yeah. of his enemies. And he could have ridden off into the sunset. But he didn't do that. Nope. And now he's going to end his 40-plus year career in the Senate while a bunch of drunk yokels in Kentucky chant retire at him when he's trying to give a standard can stump, stump, stump speech. It's a pretty embarrassing yep. end to his career. Right? Is this what you thought, Mitch? Is this, is this why you stayed? Is this worth... I guess he just stayed for his vanity to be the longest-serving majority leader or whatever, whatever he wanted. But now you've at the point you've stayed long enough, everybody hates you. And you have people in leadership like John Thune who could easily be the next Senate minority leader who should have been years ago, but... Mitch hasn't retired. This is another thing the party. When, I, I thought a party would come down and say, yo, Mitchells, you're done. You're done. It doesn't happen anymore. No money, no nothing. We will campaign against you. We will primary you. We're done. We, you, you've outlived your usefulness. We thank you for what you did. But Mitch, you're a big boy. You know how this game is played, and you know how the ending comes for long-term politicians. This is something that you should have seen coming. So Business Insider has an entire series 
So it's an article series that they have continually added to since 2021 about our brain politicians and how yeah. our politicians continue to get older and older. Um, and it's a departure from recent history and what we should do about it because these people don't want to step down. And it's, it's really fascinating because we've had this discussion ad nauseum and we don't see any change. Nope. You would think somebody, staffers, family, people would come up and say to these people, like, it's you need to step down. Diane Feinstein, you have Chuck Grassley, who was just reelected at 89, who will be like 94 when he's up for his next Senate term. And I mean, he's already signing, showing signs of impaired cognition. Well, isn't this part of the party conversation we've just had? Yeah. I mean, a party traditionally wouldn't allow someone to sit there as long no, as No, in the era of smoke-filled rooms, that would not have happened. Because again, we want you out and we want a new person in who's more under our control, doesn't have the base you have, and needs our money. Yeah. And, and Chuck Grassley, Diane Feinstein are all sitting there as, as evidence that the party system is broke down and needs to be completely rethought. Yep. Because Feinstein, she, she had another fall again at home. I think she had a I heard about this, hospital yeah. visit. Her, we talked about this before, but her daughter has power of attorney. I just don't understand how that's legal, that you can be a, a U.S. A senator and wield the type of power they do and basically legally giving up your power to make decisions. Yeah, I, that should not be the case. But again, I don't think there's any rules you know, around that at all. She's missed half of the Senate calendar, I believe, at this point, at least. Did you hear her when she got confused with the vote was and just kind of, instead of saying I, she just launched into some speech or something? Oh, I didn't and I think see that. somebody sitting next to her said, Diane, just say I. And she just went, I. Well, look at how many instances of where she can't even recognize her colleagues. I mean, yeah. She forgets her name. She forgets why she's there. I mean, there's been cases where a reporter has actually, that's been caught on audio, has directly asked her something. And she's like, at a loss to even answer it. She's completely confused. And and then he gets ushered away or one of her staffers comes up and like stops the interview. My fa- I, I love Diane Feinstein just because of the one moment she had. Have you ever seen the famous clip where they bring in the sixth grade field trip to the senator's office to say hi to Senator Diane Feinstein? No. I and one of the six-year-olds asked her, well, you need to be doing more about climate change. And she said, you're a child and you don't know what you're talking about. I'm a senator, move along kids. It's one of the best. It's oh, the, one of the greatest pieces. I have not seen it's, that. it's just as an adult, just shut up, kid. But I don't she, give a shit what your dad said to tell to tell me. Just keep moving. Diane Feinstein is another one who's been there for for many decades. In fact, yeah. I, I was reading an article and saw an old photo of her in 1994 when she was running for election to the Senate with Bill Clinton, and she's had a storied career. And as far as California Democrats go, she's on what could probably be considered the more moderate side for California Democrats compared to so. her colleagues like Boxer and Harris. And and she's had some great legislation, but just like you said, she's unfortunately going to end on this very embarrassing yeah, note because absolutely. she doesn't know when to call it quits. Brandon, I forgot to plug in the laptop, so I'm going to walk behind you and pick up the power cord. Okay. Did you see any of Trump's uh, team in court today? You can answer that while I get the power cord. Yes, I did. So. Today, there was a court proceeding with uh, a D.C. court with the uh, the judge for the case involving uh, January 6th. And this was important because the prosecution is requesting a uh, protective order to prevent Trump from leaking information about crucial evidence at his rallies and on Truth Social and from intimidating witnesses. We've already seen some of that because he's openly talked about the case in court. He's mocked and condemned the judge. 
Uh, he made a statement on Truth Social saying, if you come at me, I'm gonna come after you. He referred to DC as a cesspool um, and, and talked about its voters, which could be seen as a, uh, a bail threat at the jury pool in DC. So the prosecutor, the DOJ, naturally has concerns about uh, Trump and his continual continued impact on the case as it proceeds. So a protective order was issued. It was a little bit of a mixed bag. The judge went along with the defense version of the protective order, which limits the information to um, uh, specific crucial evidence that can't be disclosed. The DOJ wanted a more expansive protective yeah. order. Uh, um, but if you do look at this case and try it outside the politics of it, um, th it's probably in the DOJ's best interest that the judge acted cautiously. I think so. With these trials, especially on First Amendment issues, like you want to be cautious because if anything goes wrong and the defendant can come back and say, well, my due process rights were violated or my First Amendment rights, that could jeopardize the entire case or the verdict and result in either a mistrial or a new new trial. So I think keeping it as limited as possible for now until um, there's an instance where uh, the uh, DOJ has to act is, uh, I think, appropriate. Yeah. But also the judge did warn Trump, you know, about he needed to be cautious about what he said. He could have just say whatever yeah. he wanted. Um, there is the, the threat of probation being revoked around this, too. Yeah. So, I mean, all of that is at play. And so I think, I mean, Trump was reminded of that today. Now, the interesting thing will be is after all this, will we see a Trump change in Trump's behavior in terms of what he says, his conduct? No. No. I, I think it, it'll be interesting to see Trump battle with judges all along the way. Because he's not going to modulate his behavior. He's not going to change. That That's not going to happen. I think the most interesting part about today is when the judges told him, I don't give a shit that you're running for president. There will be not a single decision will be made where I take into account yes, your campaign point. schedule or that you're running for president. That is not entering to no. the, yeah, at all. So, hey, John, Laura, whatever, the Trump's main attorney who's on the, the Sunday shows for five days, I don't give a shit that he's running for president. I know you went out and told everybody that this should be a major piece of my decision making. It is not, and we're moving forward very quick. By the way, that guy, I don't know where this attorney came from, but oh my gosh, he made, I wanted to punch him in the face when he was on TV, and he was basically claiming that Trump's uh, threats at Raffensburger, Georgia, and finding the votes, that that was uh, basically aspirational. I love like, that Trump wasn't trying try to, you know, um, have the election overturned. It was just aspirational. Brandon, I can tell you from personal experience, if, like, the people in your life, just tell oh, no, I meant that aspiration. Like, you know, if you're dating somebody or a co-worker, they, they don't like it. I've been using that with Jody the past three days. Oh, that was just aspirational. I really didn't mean it. Yeah, I mean, let's see if that works for the average Joe. It's just so Yelling stupid. fire in a crowded movie theater or threatening the life of somebody. Uh, oh, well, no, that was just aspirational. So, and he has one of those Peter Strzok, I want to punch you in the face faces, where he's constantly got that smirky, yeah. smuggy smug on his face. Constant smirk. Lots of Trump's, Trump's lawyers average, what, about six to eight weeks of service before yeah. they bail out. Uh, I'm assuming Trump, one of the dramas of this is going to be he can't keep a lawyer and he's constantly firing, firing lawyers. But if that's true, if that's the tack the judge takes on this, then we're rolling. Yeah. This is going to be done before, before the, uh, the 2024 election. 
Well, and we do have a proposed start date for the case. I don't know if it's final yet. January, January something? 2nd. Yeah. And January think, 2nd. And the government said it'll take four weeks. We can do this in a month and go. So that's striking. And the reason January 2nd is notable, the Iowa caucuses are January 15th. Yeah. So <laughs> you're going to have this case go right through Iowa. God, did, have you seen DeSantis trying to just look like a normal human being in Iowa? I, I saw oh, a few clips, yeah. It's just, he's just so unnatural. It would almost be better if he started every event by saying, hey, guys, I just want you to know, I'm not very good at this. This is going to be a problem for me. I'm going to do my best, but just stick with me the here. The whole, like, getting along with people thing? So, yeah. <laughs> Brandon, we He's both, not good with people. Let's we both that. worked at a company that sold software together, and I was a sales engineer. And I would train. I was involved with training the new salespeople. And we always try to teach them the technique when you're talking about software. Even, even if it has the perception of being complicated or technical, one of the big ways to connect with people is dumb yourself down. How does this work? How do you use this? I'm not really sure how this happens. Can you tell me about how it happens here? DeSantis would be well served to dumb himself down. I don't think he could do that. It's not in his DNA. It goes against his, his character and who he is. But if he could pull that off, show up and start asking some questions, look comfortable talking to somebody from time to time. DeSantis is just proving over and over again. He's just not, just doesn't have it. No, I, I sent you, what was it? I sent you a poll. Yeah. And now I can't That remember. shows him in New Hampshire in the third, I believe. Right. Is it Vivek? It's Vivek and Chris Christie. Christie. Oh, that's right. Chris Christie is now ahead, uh, according to this New Hampshire poll. Yeah, he continues to be in free fall in all of these polls. He's not gaining ground. He fired his campaign manager last week, no. which is comical, which I get. That's the only thing he can do. But the camp, that's not going to change his weaknesses, no. which he hasn't been able to, to affect or account for. But, yeah, it's just it's it's frustrating to watch. And, again, it goes back to somebody like that. Like, if you really can't build rapport with people, you don't have those interpersonal skills, like, you should not be running for president. I'm sorry. Like, that is what you're doing 24-7 on the yeah. campaign trail. And if you can't do that, you probably should not be serving in elected office. Well, and Chris Christie and I can't think of anybody else who would, who would actually – well, Chris Christie's going to be the big one. They get on I that debate stage debate in two weeks. Ripped. He's a stand-in for Trump. Yeah, because Trump's right? not going to be there. If, yeah. if you're sitting there with 17%, which is the leader on the stage, they are all going to pivot. They're all going to pounce And on practice whacking Trump DeSantis. by whacking DeSantis. Yeah. And he's just not – I don't think he's got the political skill to navigate that or to be able to, to flip that into something that would make him look good. I expect to see on that debate stage a lot more um, DeSantis moments like the one that occurred with Charlie Chris. Where he just wouldn't answer the question. Yeah. He was just awkwardly, look, you know, shifting his eyes around, looking like he is going to be, you know, bamboozled and just caught flat-footed. I think by some of these candidates, and I, because again, he's been insulated. He really doesn't have to respond to audiences. He's banning reporters in Iowa already. He's <laughs> kicking insane. reporters in Iowa out of his press conferences or his little meetup places. Well, and he's had, I mean, some of these rallies he's had in Iowa, like, he's had, like, five, six people only show up. I mean, it's been very low turnout, too. I understand a presidential candidate's frustration in spending this much time in Iowa. I am applying to be the commander-in-chief of the largest military this world has ever seen. And I'm talking Most to six dudes. In the free world. I'm talking yeah. to six dudes who made a fucking sculpture out of butter 
at the Iowa State Fair that I have to act interested in. It, that's got to be just who to well, be able to do both, to be able to be the commander in chief and talk to those four pig farmers in Iowa about the butter statue. It it's a hard skill. It's very rare that somebody can do that and do it well. And DeSantis just doesn't have that. But I always go back to he has struggled to connect with donors. He has been at lavish fundraising dinners with donors who want to give him you know, millions of dollars. And some of these donors have come away from that saying, oh my gosh, like he's awful. He's awkward. He seems disinterested. Yeah. Like, I can't stand that guy. So if you can't show interest and somehow fake it with a donor who wants to give you millions of dollars yeah how are you going to do it with like a farmer in iowa or you know just the odd people yeah. you get that are part of the party activists and he has crowd. people now following him around with a bullhorn shouting ron just uh what it the fascist and shit this has just gone all horribly wrong for ron this has been another bad week for him he's done nothing to pull himself kind of out of the tailspin that he's in and everybody else is just well, he's losing time, that. right? I mean, the problem is he was a front runner, well, I should say, I mean, proposed front runner to take out Trump in the very beginning. And we know that people that tend to rise that fast and quickly typically don't hold. You know, they, they tend to lose their momentum as time goes on. That's why we don't have, you know, a, they have a president nominee and uh, Scott Walker. Yeah. I mean, you can go on, you know, throughout the list. Well, if 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 we were advising Chris Christie, I would just say more, 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 keep more. Just lean into being a fat dickhead. Just keep kicking him in the nuts again, again. Well, and what I like it about Christie has nothing to lose, right? I mean, yes. he knows his chances are slim. He doesn't care. He's not in office right now. Like he doesn't, you know, give anything. So it's it's gratifying to see that because so many of the other candidates have been overly cautious. They don't want to go after Trump. They don't want to go after just you know. They're trying to you know play it safe. But playing it safe, you're not going to get ahead, and that's why none of them have been able to. If I'm Chris Christie's campaign manager, I tell him the line I need you to work in every single one of appearances is, "I'm running for president. What are they running for?" Oh, you need to go great. over yeah. and over again. You're the only person up there actually running for president. Period. That they appear to be running for VP, Correct. cabinet positions. All of these people have some other agenda, including, including Ron. Yeah. He, I'm the only person here who is running for president. I would remind people of that over and over and over again. Tim Scott is not running for president. He's not. No. Nikki Haley asked Trump's permission to run. She is not running for president. <laughs> right. Asa Hutchinson is not running for president. Vivek Ramaswamy is not running for president. I'm it. I am here. I think I, I think Christie has a real chance to maybe pick up some early surprising showings. I don't know if win is maybe too far to say, but I have a little bit more uh, positivity about Chris Christie's candidacy than I had last week. I do too. I think if there were to be a dark horse emerge, it might be with Christie, and I feel like voters may give him a second look, and he may resonate with some segments because he does have that. I don't give a. Yeah, F attitude. So, oh, uh, if he's on stage, if I'm Haley Scott, I, I need to make the fat guy gal. That's my <laughs> whole thing. I need Chris Christie to insult me because, again, I've called Chris Christie fat. I'm not body shaming him. I'm part of the chubby crowd too. It, it, it is what it is. But I think, as we all can agree, the image of a fat Chris Christie yelling at someone, especially if it's Nikki Haley. Or Vivek Ramaswamy is not a good look for him. No. Well, and I think that's why his handlers are going to be prepping him to not get 
upset yeah. and not lose his cool. You know, the temper control, that's going to be big. Can you look presidential? Yeah. Brandon, let's talk about some, some non-news uh, stories. I have to admit, the, the brawl at the Alabama boat dock, I have watched every video on that. And I, I've been all in on going down that that rabbit hole. Have yeah. you have you watched any of these videos? Oh yeah, I've watched <laughs> and I've watched I think the same video like probably a dozen times now. So that went viral, and it's a good kind of non-political story to just show I think these crazy things that are getting you know get caught on camera now. You know we didn't have everybody with phones twenty years ago to catch these things on camera. Now we do, but yeah, this boat uh, dock worker who is trying to get this um, boat owner to move his boat and then for 45 minutes he told them to move so there was this ferry boat full of passengers that needed to dock and this boat was in their um uh at at their place in the dock and so uh yeah they've been trying and trying then this guy just starts attacking him and then all these other guys pile on yeah it's like his whole family the white the, the, the security family, guards. I wondered who these other people were. Like, well, who these other guys? The big thing is the security guards black. All these people are They're white. white. That's yeah. So a bunch of white people end up jumping this. Yes. Yes. Brendan, what year did Montgomery, Alabama, get their first black mayor? Oh gosh, I don't know. Are you going to tell me it was like twenty twenty two? Oh, that's right. I believe it was twenty twenty two. Is this the one who he hasn't been allowed to actually like mm-hmm. serve? That had all kinds of problems, yeah. Yeah. But think about that. The city of Montgomery, Alabama has its first black mayor two years ago. Hmm. But I mean, hey, is there entertainment to that video? Absolutely. Watching those four, again, I'm going to say a bunch of stuff here that I don't know, but watching those four Alabama rednecks get the shit beat out of them when they definitely deserved it. They did deserve it. I found that to be nature's healing a little bit yeah now you shouldn't be hitting women on the ground with chairs we, we could probably all agree that was a little bit over the top but the kid who jumped in the water and swam and over swam the dock and then yeah. beat the hell out of people when he got there i found that to be very entertaining that, it absolutely was yeah at the same time violence is never the answer don't be hitting other people just try not to be a dick in public, white people. I mean, just move the boat. The problem with those people, too, is, or the problem they didn't see coming, Vassar's Convenient Mart on Dallas Street is the business they own. That business is going out of business very quickly. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. These people make a living serving the public, and they decided it would be a great idea to block this dock for 45 minutes while they were apparently shouting at it and flipping it off, and then getting into a fight with the security guard when it was done. These people are the classic. They fucked around. They are definitely now going to find out. Yeah. Four of them have been charged. So they're also going to face some misdemeanor charges out of Play that fight, too. So. Stupid God. That was stupid, but I will admit, there was some entertainment value to that that I, I really enjoyed. There was, yeah. I definitely watched that more than a few times. When the one guy pushes the black security guard, and he takes his hat, takes off, his hat off and throws, throws it, the it up in the yeah. air, like it's the, like it's the bat signal. Right. And then you just see the, like these black dudes running down to the dock. You're like, oh, those white people, they're, they are in a bad, bad state right now. Yeah. Oh, well. Numbers. Let's end with um, a little science adventure type stuff. About a week ago, maybe early in the week, I started seeing on TikTok and on Twitter um, things about this new element called LK99. And the picture they show is like a little piece of metal like hovering over another little piece of metal. 
So LK99 basically is the first rumored superconductor that operates at room temperature. Now, what does that mean? I'm not a scientist, but I can Google. Basically, what it means is it's a material that can, that can conduct electricity without creating heat or losing voltage, wattage, amperage, whatever, um, of the electricity. So what does that mean in practical purposes? Think about a battery that would charge immediately in your car, in your Tesla, and last six months. That's what this means. Think about solving, it would never be a problem on this planet for any human ever to have fresh water. Because what keeps us from desalting the oceans is how much power it takes. This is done. Any power of fresh water is gone. Oil companies in 10 years probably are a thing of the past. Yeah. This is a scientific holy grail. We haven't yet, I don't think it yet has been recreated outside of the the lab. lab. Okay, that's the biggest. Some other people claim to have done it, but it has not been, been validated yet. My point in all this and what I find most interesting, Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel started, I'm gonna, he was an early tech guy who's a billionaire. He's kind of a dick. He's the one who gave P, uh, J.D. Vance. He dab- dabbled in politics, giving money. Arizona, Blake Masters. The Gawker lawsuit him. with yeah. Hulk Hogan, that was him. He, he's done some things that I don't agree with, but he has a great line. All this technology, all it's brought us is 120 characters. If you think about the people that own some of the largest tech companies in the world, your Facebooks, your, your Instagram, your Twitters, all these things we're fighting about, all they really are is, is 120-bit microblogs with an algorithm to sell you shit. Yeah. What really do they do? If we really want to get excited about technology and advancement, and if we want to take single entrepreneurs and elevate them as cultural gods and give them billions of dollars, this is the shit they should be doing. I mean, who gives a shit that somebody created Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, so all social media could fall away right now and nobody would give a shit. We could all go back to doing what we used to do. Why is it, or where is it, or who are the people that are actually working in the material sciences that can actually bring about the Star Trek generation? Right. This is this is what this is. Yeah, a lot of the money, as you said, gets funneled into platforms that are just redundant or augmenting uh, existing correct. technology. Do we need another CRM system? No. No, I mean, what we do need is medical advances and medical technology yeah. and, and ways to solve, I mean, major issues like climate change. Like, we need sustainable, and that's what why this story is so exciting because I, I did hear blips about this so I haven't had a chance to read it um, so this is this is something that doesn't come along every day well and I think two guys in China said they've replicated this like in a home lab so if you could do that oh yeah then it should be scalable oh, I think. Exxon will assassinate all of the scientists take the bats for their own and they'll, they'll own it just like they do all the oils I did see I wanted to kind of in the vein of like technology there was an AI story which is another example of like uh, fiction becoming real life. So apparently, there's a uh, Amazon is having a challenge with all of these books that are being published independently and sold on Amazon, yeah. created using AI, written using AI. But in some cases, they have real authors' names attached. And so one author saw a book that it said it was written by her, and she's like, "I never write this book. This yeah. isn't mine." Um, contacted Amazon. She is suing them now. Amazon is scrambling to find and remove these books that are written using AI but have real authors' names attached to them. Yeah. When those authors did not get permission, did not write the book, did not say their name could be you know, um, ascribed to that. So just, again, a fascinating another aspect of the AI 
challenge you know that we face yeah uh, along with many <laughs> well this element if it's true this is what pushes ai up several levels because right now the the main limiting factor with computing power is heat generated by electricity to microchips yeah if that goes away everything no everything's yeah. a supercomputer I think they have a supercomputer right now. You have to cool it to minus whatever right. and all this shit. If all of that goes away, this is the avenue to Star Trek. What I'm saying is, could, <laughs> could, could we stop giving a fuck about two morons who are going to have a fight now at the Coliseum in Rome? Oh, Did right. you see that? Wait, is that, that, has there been date set for that? That, no. Oh. But if you strip away, what have uh. those two really done? Not a whole hell of no. a... Okay, I get the Tesla argument and, and that, but could we stop just falling for these small things and challenge people who are these entrepreneurs to do much do more bigger do more right i think that's our hour thanks brandon thanks craig thanks for listening to two men in the middle make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts check out our website at two men in the drop us an email at two men in the middle at gmail.com or tweet at us at two men in the middle we'll see you next week